After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. After this are the first two verses of this chapter. So when you read that, you need to look backwards and figure out after what. Well, we are in the heavenly scene here. The book of Revelation is largely and mostly the book of prophecy about the future. And John has had a vision in heaven where God is holding a scroll in his hand that represents, to give you the short version, God's plan for the end of the world, the judgment and redemption of the world. And it was sealed with seven seals. Seals are important for us this morning because a seal was you'd pour wax on, on a piece of paper, you'd stamp it with a ring or with a, a cylindrical seal, and that would seal it shut. It would close it. We still use that terminology today. Well, nobody was found worthy to open the seals until the Lamb of God, Jesus, showed up. No one was worthy to inaugurate the end until Jesus did. And then chapter 6, we saw him open the first six seals and saw the beginning of what will take place when the end comes, according to our theology, after the rapture takes place. And we saw in that chapter a couple things, and I'm trying to make sure I don't get too far into the details that we miss it for those of you that are not so familiar with it. Here's what Revelation 6, in accordance with the rest of the Bible, prophesies will happen when the end comes. The first thing is a rise of an evil empire called Babylon. And we will discuss on another day whether that is symbolic or a literal name, Babylon. It could be both. But there's going to be a world empire that will rise. It's going to not be a peaceful transition. There's going to be great global conflict. There's going to be war. There's going to be famine. There's going to be death. That's the first thing is this empire rising that the Bible calls Babylon. And it's headed by this man called the Antichrist, which we'll learn more about him later. As well as countless Christian martyrs. So during this time, while this empire is rising, Christians are going to be taking it on the chin. That they're going to be oppressed by this empire, which is only confirmed through every other place the Bible talks about this. And the other thing we saw last time is a worldwide cataclysm, some kind of earthquake the Bible describes. And we had a lot of fun going through it last time, at least I did, talking about is this an earthquake, meaning God is, is bringing about a natural disaster? Is God himself smiting the world? Or is this symbolic of some terrible conflict that humans bring upon themselves. It's not hard for us in this day and age to conceive of such a thing. Some people like Ed Heinsohn, who is a pre-trib guy like us, believes this is representing some kind of worldwide nuclear exchange, that it's all tied together with the rise of this empire, that there will be a point where they actually, as I said, they actually do it. Everything that we've been warned about since the nuclear age will take place, and that that's what that cataclysm was. Although I think it is more likely that this is God deliberately and specifically inflicting a worldwide earthquake upon the earth. Although I, I think there is room for both interpretations. Point today is evil empires rising, 
Believers in Jesus are being martyred and there's been some kind of terrible worldwide cataclysm. And the question that chapter 6 ends with is, who can stand? Who is going to be able to last when God pours out his wrath on the world? And this chapter 7, I believe, is pretty much a response to that question. He's going to show us who's going to stand. There's plenty more judgment and destruction to come, which is why I believe that, that you should read Revelation in a linear fashion, meaning one thing leads into the next rather than as a cycle, like it describes the same thing several different times. Um, there are dis difference of opinion on that too. Not going to get into it again, but that's one reason. You see that even after all this, Babylon has risen. Believers in Jesus are being afflicted. Worldwide cataclysm. These angels are holding back the four winds here. They're about to unleash something else. But here comes this angel with a seal in his hand. Saying, wait, 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 wait. He says, we've got to seal the servants of God before we do this. That this next affliction is going to come upon the earth and the sea, which is what we're going to read about in chapter 8. Before you do that, we've got to seal the servants of God. Now, this raises some questions for us that we're going to ask right now. First of which is, when is this? When does this take place? The great earthquake of chapter 6 is generally considered by most interpreters to represent the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation, more or less. I'll explain why we believe it's seven years again in just a moment. But that this takes place over seven years, and that this big earthquake happens more or less near the center. Okay, I think that's, that's fair enough without diving too far into it. So is this describing what's going to happen immediately after that? Does it describe what's happening before that? Because some people say, wait a minute, the angels are going to harm the earth and the sea, which is exactly kind of what was described in chapter 6. So is this describing something that happened in the spiritual world before all that took place? I don't know that the time is quite as relevant here. It could be. Uh, I think what we're seeing is, is something that is happening in the midst of all of this. Because I, I don't think that this, what this ceiling is, is quite as specific as some folks would like to make it. And to be clear, some folks that I greatly admire and agree with on most things. Because the second question is, what is this? First one is, when is this? And I think that question is best answered by looking at number two, what is this? When we say sealed, it does not explain what that means. A seal or a mark is to mark somebody and say, all right, this one is the servant of God. Now, what does this mean? Is he saying, as many assume, that these people are not going to be hurt by any of the judgments coming on? Well, that is a very common interpretation, but I, I do not know that that is what he's saying here. I don't know that you can say that definitively, that these that are going to be sealed will not be harmed by these judgments. Because if you read the book of Revelation, it's pretty clear people are getting harmed by these judgments. That there's nobody that's getting a break except for a few people we'll talk about later that are unique in this. Or is he just saying that these are some that we are setting aside for the Lord's sake? I think that second one is probably the better option. I don't know that he's saying we're going to mark these guys here and they're not going to be hurt by any of the judgments. <clears throat> that, you know, 
a, a meteor is going to fall upon the earth and they'll be able to like stand in the middle of it and then walk away from it. Um, it could be, but it doesn't say that if you look at it closely. I think if you want to use a, a clever turn of phrase here, this is describing election rather than protection. And they, they kind of both go together. Revelation chapter 12, we will see that the Jews are going to be protected from the Antichrist during this time. But I, I hesitate to go as far as, as some like Tim LaHaye maybe would, that when, when these people are sealed, well, you're, you're good. You're protected for the rest of time. Let me, I, I think what Jesus said here helps us understand it. Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31 Matthew 24 is what's called the Olivet Discourse. Jesus is talking about the end of the world before he goes to the cross on the Mount of Olives, which is why we call it the Olivet Discourse. And Jesus said, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. They will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Can you see how Revelation mirrors some of this language that Jesus just said? First of all, we just read about you know, the sky being darkened and all that. But he's saying that the elect will be gathered from the four winds. And here we have somebody telling the angels at the four winds, hold on, I've got to mark who belongs to the Lord. So Jesus is giving us broad strokes in the book of Matthew. There's going to be these terrible judgments. And there's going to be some that are elect and are going to be gathered. And John is giving us, I think, the detail of what you call this election process here. Now, if you read that word elect, and you immediately jump to Romans and think, oh, he's talking about Christians, you've got to look closer at this passage. Just because a word is used one way here doesn't mean it's going to use the same way somewhere else. But John is, I think, describing this here. Rather than a specific event, right, that there's going to be a moment where the Lord is, okay, you're sealed and you're not going to get hurt anymore. I think what he is describing symbolically is the preservation of Israel through the Great Tribulation. And we're going to follow through in the verses and see this. This is what I think is happening here. It's like in the midst of all this judgment, we've got to mark who the servants of the Lord are. Because the Lord has promised that he's going to preserve his people through this time. And I think when you look at some of the other verses that help inform this passage, you'll understand why I say that. Let's look at verses 4 through 8. Because you might be saying, wait a minute, where did you get Israel from this? Well, from right here. And I heard the number of the sealed... 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Okay, we got a seal, he said, the servants of God. Now you might immediately think Christians, but it doesn't say Christians. He says the tribes of Israel, the sons of Israel were sealed. They were marked as God's servants. It is impossible if you're going to read this passage with any kind of literal understanding at all, to miss the fact that these are Israelites 
from every tribe. He lists the 12 tribes and not the church. There is something in the, in the church called replacement theology. And those that hold to it really don't like that term, but I think it's a pretty good description nonetheless. That believes that the church is the new Israel. That after Jesus, it's all been brought together and there is no longer a place or a plan for the nation of Israel. The ethnic bloodline of the Jews of the 12 tribes. That the only thing that remains is the spiritual entity, which we call the church, but is, is really the new Israel. Anytime you read Israel in the Bible now, you can pretty much put in the church. However, I think passages like this one make it abundantly clear that Israel is going to be preserved forever. We're talking in this book about the end of the world. And this angel shows up at the behest of God and says, hold on, before we continue, we're going to mark the servants of the Lord. And we go, who are that? He goes, oh, the 12 tribes of Israel, of course. And I say, oh, so he, he means the church, right? No, he runs through the names of every single tribe. Unless you're going to say that when it says Israel, it doesn't mean Israel, that's what you've got to say. And I think that this is fully consonant with what the rest of the Bible says. Jeremiah 31, verses 35 through 37. I was in a uh, pastor's group one time with a, a gentleman, and most of us were talking about an issue like this. And he goes, well, I, I, I know I'm in the minority here, but I'm just going to tell you, I don't think that Israel or the Jews have anything to do with, with Jesus Christ and God anymore. Just straight out, came out and said, I don't think there's any place for them. I don't, I don't see how you can read your Bible and think that, he said. Well, with all due respect, mister, I don't see how you can read passages like the one I'm about to read and think what you think. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. Wow, God handles the sun and the moon and the stars and the sea. Praise his name. He then says, if this fixed order, what fixed order? Sun, moon, stars, right? If that order departs from me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. God came out and said, if I change the way the moon and the sun work, then you'll know that I've changed the way Israel works. Verse 37, thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they've done, declares the Lord. That's what folks will say. Well, yeah, God said he would never cast them away, but then they crucified the Messiah. But Jesus says right there, I don't care what they do. If you can measure the heavens, and I find it amazing that scientists now realize that the universe is actually expanding constantly. So you, you're never going to measure it, guys. And for all of our ability and all of our technological prowess, you still can't go down to the center of the earth, which tells me the Lord has still not cast off Israel. Romans chapter 11, verse 1, Paul plainly says it. He says, has God cast aside his people whom he foreknew? He says, by no means. The older translation, God forbid. Whatever conclusions you're going to draw about the Israelites, it cannot be that God is finished with them. If you're going to take your Bible seriously, there's always a remnant. That's the whole point of Romans 9, 10, and 11. It's not just supposed to be about, you know, uh, 
doctrine about predestination that's in there, but it's all in the context of how God is going to preserve a remnant for Israel like he always has. And that's what is being described in Revelation chapter 7. That God is going to preserve his people. Because what was the question at the end of chapter 6? Who can stand? He goes, well, my 12 tribes for, for one, because I'm going to seal them. Now we say, wait a minute though, hold on. How can you say that God is going to preserve those people when they crucified the Messiah, persecuted the church, and continue to reject Jesus to this very day? Well, that's a good question, and it's one that the New Testament wrestles with quite a bit, but it also gives us the answer. Because Israel rejected Jesus, their hearts, Paul says, have been partially hardened. They've been set aside temporarily. This is what I like to describe as the desolation of Israel. This is what we're living in right now. It was prophesied in Hosea chapter 3 through the symbol of Hosea and his adulterous wife. He said, I'm going to redeem you, buy you back, but you and I are not going to come together as husband and wife yet. Why? He explains, he says, because Israel will dwell many days without a temple, without a priest, without anything. But, verse 5 of Hosea 3 says, but in the latter days, they will call upon the Lord and upon their King David. The prophet said, it's going to be after redemption is purchased, Israel will remain the, the wife of the Lord, but there's going to be a separation. It's not going to be right yet until the latter days. Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, prophesied 69 sevens of Israel's history, after which the Messiah would be cut off. Then, he says, invaders will come and wipe out the city and desolations will be decreed for Israel. And then the last seven years is what we read about in Revelation. That there is a, this phase that was prophesied. Jesus said in Matthew 23, your house is left to you desolate until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What am I trying to say? You cannot say that what Israel is doing or has done since the crucifixion disqualifies them from God's covenant because God knew about it ahead of time and told us ahead of time. And he said, and it's all going to end with their redemption. And in order to be redeemed, they've got to be preserved through this harrowing seven-year period that we call the tribulation, which is why this angel comes in and says, hold on, don't forget there's going to be a remnant. We've got to make sure that they're marked. 144,000 of them. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Here's why we believe that this tribulation will last seven years. That there will be one more week, it says, left for Israel. One week, one set of seven. One seven-year period. And that it will begin with the Antichrist making a covenant with the nation of Israel. With many nations, but especially with Israel which is what we read about at the beginning of Revelation, the rise of Babylon, its conquest, its treaty, its doing whatever we can to overtake the world. But also tells us in Daniel 9, 27, that the Antichrist will break that treaty halfway through the tribulation and put an end to Israel's sacrifice and insist on worship for himself, which is probably why you see this sealing of the nation of Israel at what many believe to be the halfway point. Because that will have been when the abomination of desolation takes place, when the persecution of the Jews ramps up, and the Lord is going, don't worry, I'm going to take care of these people. I'm going to seal them. You cannot escape the Hebrew character of the end of the world. 
If you're going to take your Bible seriously, you've got to recognize this. This is Israel's 70th week, the tribulation is. It's their final wake-up call. Jeremiah 30, verse 7 describes this as the time of Jacob's trouble, or the ESV calls it the Jacob's distress. That God is going to use these seven years of terrible tribulation to drive Israel to the point where they're ready to call upon Jesus. How, what would have to happen to the Jews today for them to collectively, as a whole, say, we are now going to recognize Jesus as King and Messiah? You're like, ah, that could not happen, right? Well, the Lord goes, don't worry, I'm going to make it happen. As he pours out wrath on the world, part of the plan is also to wake up his people. So that at the end of those seven years, according to Zechariah, God will lift their hardness of heart and they will call upon Jesus and he'll ride in and rescue them. We've got to get this. Because if you read this, and if you're somebody like John and you're watching this, you watch the four horsemen of the apocalypse, all the believers in Jesus being martyred, and then this terrible earthquake, who can stand? John, who has already experienced the, the horrors of the destruction of Jerusalem in his life, goes, what's going to happen to God's people? How are they going to survive this? And John calls back to the last time in the Bible somebody felt the same way. The last reason I believe that this is describing election, not so much as protection, although that's in there, right? I don't think this is like a supernatural, you can walk through the fire and not be burned specifically, as much as there's going to be a general preservation, might be a better word, during this time. John's calling back to Ezekiel chapter 9, or the vision he's receiving is calling back to Ezekiel 9. When Ezekiel was in Jerusalem, it's actually kind of interesting to me. He had a vision where an angel grabbed him by the hair and carried him back to Jerusalem. So it doesn't say if that hurt or not, but would have hurt me, I'll say that much. Grabbed him by the hair, carried him back, and then he begins to see God strike down Jerusalem. He sees in a vision the supernatural side of what would be the sack of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. And Ezekiel cries out to God, Lord, what are you doing? Are you going to kill all of them? But what happens in Ezekiel 9 is the Lord sends an angel to seal, to mark the remnant upon the forehead, all those that belong to the Lord. That sounds familiar, doesn't it, after reading this passage? That the only ones that would survive the sack of Jerusalem would be those that God had sealed on the forehead, those that were true servants of God. And now here in Revelation, you have a similar situation. John is observing the terrors and the horrors of God's judgment. The question rings out in heaven, who can stand? And God leans over and says, don't worry. You remember in the Old Testament? I'm going to do that again. I'm going to seal my servants upon the forehead and preserve them through this time. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, says, At that time, referring to this same, the eschaton, as it's called, the end of the world, At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. But there shall be a time of trouble such as never been seen since there was a nation until that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Daniel says, That time is going to be so bad that no nation has ever experienced anything like that. Great Depression, Dust Bowl, Holocaust, nothing to what's going to happen in these last days. 
But God says, don't worry, I'm going to write some names down in my book and they're going to be preserved. And I think you see a similar image here in Revelation 7. The point of this is that God will preserve a remnant of Israelites even through these terrible years. Who can stand? Israel will stand because God will make them stand. In fact, he says 144,000 of them, 12,000 from every tribe. And of course, the question everybody asks is, is this a literal number? Are there literally 12,000 people? I see absolutely no reason why not. If I were to find out that this was a round number, a symbolic number, 12 tribes, 12,000 for each, 144,000, it's symbolic of just a lot of people, okay, I can live with that. But it says 144,000. It's really interesting to me. The people, when they see numbers in the Bible, they say, now we know this number does not have to mean what it says. And you ask why, and they say, well, because we know that numbers are not spiritual or supernatural or significant. To which I would say, how exactly do you know that? Because the Lord seems kind of into numbers, does he not? The number seven pops up an awful lot, not just in like our thing, but seven days he created the world, right? Writing to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. He likes the number seven, the seven feasts of the children of Israel. He also likes the number 40 related to judgment, 40 years in the wilderness, 40 days and 40 nights that the rains fell, right? We're going to read about the Antichrist who has a number, 666. There's something about this. I don't think you can read your Bible and say that there's no such thing as a symbolic number. No such thing as a number that actually means something. God seems to like it. So 12,000 specifically, I don't have any problem with that. That this is exactly how many. Now this is a quirky list of tribes. Let me mention this quickly. Very hard to find a place in the Bible where they list all 12 tribes of Israel exactly the same. Kind of like how the list of the 12 disciples, another Important number, by the way, 12. Uh, the list of 12 disciples is always different because they all had nicknames and they're all, you know, called different things. Judas, not Iscariot, started going by Thaddeus, probably because he didn't want to be confused with the other guy. There were two Simons, there were two Jameses, right? And they were a bunch of guys. They had nicknames for each other. Well, it's kind of like that with the 12 tribes of Israel. In this one, Judah comes first. Judah was the fourth born. So this is not in birth order here. We also see that Levi is included. Now, those of you that have been following us on Wednesday nights, you know that Levi is not usually included in the list of 12 tribes. Why? Because Levi was given the special job to look after the tabernacle and the temple. So rather than count them, you would count Joseph twice because Joseph was given a double portion by Jacob at his death. So you'd have the tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh rather than the tribe of Joseph. That's why you don't hear the tribe of Joseph very much. But here you do have the tribe of Joseph. You have the tribe of Manasseh, but no tribe of Ephraim. Well, that makes sense because Ephraim was the larger of the two tribes. So you might say that Ephraim was Joseph. But then Dan's not there. The tribe of Dan is not there. And there's a million reasons people have given of why he's not there. Many people are very confident on that. I'm not going to be real confident on that. The early church fathers believed it was because the, that the tribe of Dan was going to give rise to the Antichrist. But I don't think you can say that because in Daniel chapter 9, it says that the people of the Antichrist would be the ones who destroyed the sanctuary. And that certainly was not the tribe of Dan that did that. That was Rome or the Syrian conscripts of Rome, depending on how pedantic you want to be about it. 
But Dan's not in there. Now, if you look at the Old Testament, Dan was famous for their idolatry, especially when we get to Judges, man. They did some terrible stuff. So many people say that's why they were excluded because of their idolatry. But if then if you read Ezekiel chapter 48, you'll see that in the last days when all of the 12 tribes are counted, Dan is included there. So I don't really have a good answer for you. The whole point, though, is that there's 12,000 from each tribe, 144,000 total, and Dan is not listed. There you go. Go home and meditate on it and figure it out for yourself. I don't see this as a major issue. I think that there's a lot of ways you could resolve this. I just don't know which one is, is the best. So it's best just to say, say that. All purpose of this situation here, I, I think is very, there, there's sort of a, uh, a common understanding of this passage. And this comes from great, great men that I love and admire, like John Walvoord and uh, uh, Tim LaHaye especially that, that pushed this, that the 144,000 that are sealed, these are Jewish evangelists that are gonna be untouched by the, the judgments during the tribulation. That could very well be, but that, those, that conclusion is an extrapolation of what it says. I, it's very obvious, and everybody agrees on this, this is describing the preservation of Israel. I'm reluctant to go too far beyond that, but you can have a fun discussion in your home fellowships this week. A major purpose of the tribulation is to judge and wake up the nation of Israel to call upon their Messiah. Who can stand? Israel can stand because God will make them stand. Okay, verse 9 through 14 now. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Seven things they praised him for. Numbers again. Then one of the elders, verse 13, addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. <laughs> Ever be asked a question that you really don't know the answer to? Well, he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So another after this. This is important to note because this marks this as a different, although related, vision. Don't confuse them. Uh, lots of people immediately jump to conclusions, replacement theologians, and say, he says the 12,000 12, from each tribe, but then right immediately he's talking about a multitude from every nation. It's all the same thing. It's not. It's two separate visions. After this, I saw that. After that, I saw this. And I think that not only are they not the same thing, they're almost opposites to each other. Before we saw a specific number from specific tribes. Now you're seeing an innumerable number from every tribe. Don't confuse them. They are related. They're making a similar point, but they're separate from one another. Again, we're answering the question from chapter 6, verse 17. Who can stand? And he sees an innumerable multitude of saved Gentiles. They're clothed in white, which speaks of righteousness. This has been the theme throughout the book of Revelation. To be clothed in white is to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And notice, they washed their robes in the blood of Jesus. 
If you wash a white robe in blood, it's not going to come out white, is it? They're waving palm branches. Well, we know this. This is Palm Sunday, right? Which itself looks back to the Feast of Tabernacles, which is saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a symbol of the kingdom. Here's a bunch of people from other nations that have acknowledged Jesus as their Messiah. Zechariah 14, 16, by the way, specifically says that in the end times, in the millennial kingdom, that every Gentile nation will come and celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And here John sees a picture of a bunch of Gentiles waving the palm branches that were related to the Feast of Tabernacles. Isn't that cool? And their salvation, that they say, is from God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. Remember, the Lamb in the book of Revelation represents Jesus. Like John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when they see this, all the angels in heaven fall down in this sevenfold worship. 1 Peter 1.12 says that angels are so intrigued by your salvation that they desire to study it and understand it. So when they see this in heaven, it causes them all to say, yes, amen, glory to God for this. You don't think these angels have ever said to God, Lord, why don't you just toast these little flesh bags? <laughs> like, look at them. They're rebelling against you. And they can die. Why don't you just kill them? But the Lord goes, I'm going to save them. And then when they see it, it, it just causes them to fall on their faces and worship. An elder approaches John, one of the 24 elders seated around. And he says, John, and he goes, hey, who are these guys? And John goes, don't play games with me. You know I don't know that. You know that. You tell me. He said, these are those that come out of the great tribulation. These are those who are saved during the worldwide apocalypse that Revelation describes. And how many of them? So many people you can't even number them. This should lay to rest forever the question of whether salvation is possible after the rapture. I don't know why some guys say this, but there will be some that say, if you've heard the gospel before the rapture happens, you can never get saved again. Where does it say that exactly? Because right here it says that there's going to be a multitude that no one can count that will be saved during this time. Despite Babylon, despite the wrath of God being poured out, the fullness of the Gentiles will be saved. In fact, Romans 11.25 tells us, How long will the hardness of heart for Israel last? Until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And that's what John sees here, the fullness of the Gentiles. Back in Matthew 24, 14, again, Jesus, in the Olivet Discourse, talking about the same time of history, says, This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus and John are talking about the same thing. So it makes sense that they're saying the same things, right? Some people have even thought that John structured the way he wrote down this vision based on what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse. Or the Holy Spirit inspired it the same way both times. Either one is, is appropriate. The point is that part of this tribulation is to get the gospel out to every corner of the world that hasn't heard it yet. And some, as I said, have concluded that the 144,000 Jews will be instrumental in that. I will say it is certainly possible. I don't know if I can say it's definitive that it's going to happen. All right? I think this is describing, again, election, not so much protection. You'll also note that John seems to scrupulously avoid calling these saints the church in the book of Revelation. 
Now, some people might say, well, I mean, there's lots of different words for the church. Yes, but in the beginning of Revelation, we saw the word church all the time. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? These are the seven churches. I'm going to remove your church from the, its lampstand, right? The minute John goes up to heaven, we never hear the word church again until the very end of the book. I think that is because there is a difference in who the, these two different groups of people are. We know from 2 Thessalonians that there will be a shift in the Lord's restraint and the Holy Spirit's influence on the world during this time. That the established church, according to the way I understand the Bible, will be raptured, will be gone, will be taken away, and evil will be unleashed. So imagine if every believer in the world was gone. Some people believe that this is not so much a catching up of the church. I would disagree, but I think we get to the same conclusion. But that, that great apostasy will happen so that the church will have completely fallen away by the time Babylon rises. Either way, you end up at the same place. That there is no living testimony of the gospel. God's not holding back Satan anymore. And the Holy Spirit is no longer restraining evil. There will be an innumerable group of people that will be saved because the gospel is unstoppable. But it's going to be different. And it seems that this term church is specifically reserved for those that come to faith before the eschaton. However, let's make this very clear. They are saved the same way we are. Everybody throughout history is saved the same way. Some dispensationalists start to drift on this one. You've got to watch out for that. I'm proud to call myself a dispensationalist, but I'm not into the multiple salvations thing. There's only one way to be saved. I don't care if it's Cain and Abel all the way to the last person to be saved before Jesus returns. It is by grace, through faith, and the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Whether you are anticipating the faith in the Old Testament, whether you're living right now and receiving the testimony of the church, or you're living in the Wild West that we call the Great Tribulation at the end of the world, it's only through washing your robes in the blood of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 1 verse 18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Don't you love that? He's like, can we at least, let's just talk this out, right? Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. That's where you get that picture of the garments of white through the rest of the Bible. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, took away your sin by his death. When Jesus' blood was shed, people say this, and it, it's it's such an ignorance of what this means. Christians are so obsessed with blood and sacrifice because that's what we needed. Who, who's supposed to pay for your sins? You? You can if you want to forever in a place called hell. Or you can say, Jesus Christ has died in my place. Everything that I deserved, Jesus took for me on the cross. The blood of Jesus can cleanse your life. You get the picture here, I hope, that your, your garment, your righteousness is filthy. You have nothing good to bring to God. You're not good enough. You'll never be good enough because you ain't perfect. We're, I, we have this weird thing that we say now, this weird like Instagram wisdom where it's like, your flaws are what make you beautiful. No, your flaws are what make you flawed. Okay? Yes, God can take broken things and redeem them, but they have to be redeemed. If your righteousness, your good deeds are a garment, they're filthy and gross. You've got to wash it clean. How do you do that? There's only one cleansing agent that can wash it away, and it's the blood of Jesus. 
putting your faith in what Jesus has done, saying his death will count for mine, getting on your knees and pledging your soul to Jesus Christ. I think we all understand what that means, do we not? How do I become a Christian? You put your faith in Jesus. You say, I believe the story, I believe his word, and I commit my life to him. It's like a marriage, cleaving only unto him and forsaking all others, saying my only hope for salvation is Jesus. Because it's the only hope you have for salvation. See how they're celebrating here. Don't you love that? They're celebrating, waving the palm branches. Because those who believe are not just going to overcome someday, they will, but they also overcome right now. And that's what I want to close as we get through these last few verses here, talking about how we overcome the world even right now. Let's read verses 15 through 17. Therefore, they, meaning the ones who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. I love that verse, man. Verse 16, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Don't you love that, that little play on words? The lamb will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now, as I just said, this is a description of those that come out of the great tribulation, those that are saved, those that put their faith in Jesus during these final years, okay? However, these blessings also apply to anybody who has washed their robes in the blood of Jesus. So let's talk about this, especially for those of you that have, you're, you're here, maybe you're kind of into it, but you're kind of not. You haven't really made your, your decision on this yet. You've been putting it off. Let me go ahead and give you the, the sales pitch. Can I do that? What, what benefits, what blessings come your way when you put your faith in Jesus? First of all, you have to because you owe it to the Lord because you are, oh, have a terrible debt of sin. But there's, there's blessings too. The first thing we see is they have a blessing of standing in God's presence serving him always and finding shelter there rather than condemnation. We're so arrogant as a people to say things like, I just, I want to be with God all the time. I just want to talk to him. I want to be around God. I, I would tell God what's what if he, I were to talk to him. Man, if you were to be in the presence of God, you would collapse and shake like a bowl full of jelly and say, oh man, that's it for me because you're a sinner and God is greater than you. People can't even stand in the presence of famous people without being tongue-tied. And they're just folks. What are you going to do when you stand before Almighty God? But how would you like that His presence is not a point of fear for you, but of comfort for you? Remember when Esther walked into the presence of the king and she wasn't invited? There's two options there. Either the king extends his scepter to you, which is a mark of acceptance and welcome into my presence, or he withholds it and you get your head chopped off or impaled. The Persians were pretty intense. But that's what it is for you and me. To walk into the presence of God without being invited means your death. But guess what? Here's the Lord today through me extending the scepter of grace to you and saying, how would you like to come in here with me? That pilgrim's heart, that wandering heart. No, haven't you felt in your life that this can't be all that there is? Why is life so short and hard? 
Why do I feel like I'm never satisfied with life? Because you're a pilgrim. You're on a journey. And your heart will only be satisfied when you get to heaven. Psalm 84 is one of my favorite psalms. Where the psalmist says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord. My heart longs and even faints. He even says, Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever praising you. Even the sparrows. The guy goes, man, that sparrow gets to build a nest in the temple. Why can't I build a nest in the temple and just stay here all the time? And verse 10 of that chapter says, For one day in your courts is better than a thousand anywhere else. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. So I would rather be the one who says, Good morning, welcome to God's house. And that's what I do all day long. I wear one of those bellhop uniforms with the white gloves and the red hats. In God's house, then be the guy sitting at the banqueting table that everybody's toasting and praising, surrounded by wealth and women and everything else in the tents of wickedness. That's what's waiting for you. You can be in God's presence forever and welcomed there and belong there as one of God's children. It's not a bad deal, huh? What does it cost? Everything. It costs your whole life. What's the second blessing? To have need of nothing. They're not going to hunger or thirst or feel the scorching heat. They're going to find water everywhere. Every hunger and thirst, not just for your physical well-being, although God will take care of your physical well-being. God heals the body. He provides for your needs. He provides people around you to love and support you. He gives you internal rest. But it's not just that. It's every single hunger and thirst you have. Every desire you have is a desire for God. You just don't realize it. Every thirst is a thirst after God. You might say, I don't know, I got some pretty messed up desires. But what are you really seeking after? You know how you know that when you commit a sin, that that's not what you really wanted? Because you don't feel better after it's over. I want this, I want it, I want it, I want it. I want that woman, I want that man, I want that. And you finally get it, and then it's over, and you feel terrible. Because that's not what you wanted. That longing in your heart was longing for something else. Every longing of the heart is a longing for God, Christian. And non-Christian here, hear me today. Every thirst that you have, even the ones that I want to be known, I want to be recognized, I want people to see me. Well, yes, that's a good thing to want. God will give you that. No outside affliction can reach them. How would you like to walk through life and nothing that hurts you can touch you? Now, there's braggadocious people with podcasts that want to talk about how nothing touches me, man, and I'm a stoic, and I'm a tough guy, and you just got to have that, that alpha mindset, and nothing can hurt you. Yeah, okay, those guys are also all on antidepressants. Have you noticed that? How would you like to be just a normal dude, but you walk through life, and it's like it just rolls right off you? Not that it doesn't hurt, not that it's not hard, but it's that it doesn't touch anything inside. How'd you like to go through something that wrecks people and not get wrecked? Because the lamb is your shepherd guiding you to what is good. You can even come out of the worst times anybody has ever seen and say, I would never trade that because look what God has done in my life. I hope you all know this one. Psalm 23 verses 1 and 2. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Now, you know, want is an old fashioned way of saying need. To want something is to lack something. I don't lack anything. There's nothing that I don't have that I need. He makes me lie down in green pastures. 
He leads me beside still waters. Maybe it's because I grew up saying it, but man, I still get choked up when I read that psalm. He leads me beside still waters. Man, I don't care who you are. If you don't hear that and go, oh, that would be nice. You're not being honest with yourself. Oh, I like to be busy. I like to go, 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 go. Eh, yeah, so do I. But man, still waters. If you can't find still waters in the midst of all that hustle and bustle, it's going to grind you down to nothing. The grind will grind you down if you can't be led by the shepherd, by the lamb, to still waters. That's the second blessing. What's the third one? Every past hurt is healed. He's going to wipe away every tear from their eye. Every past hurt will be healed in Jesus Christ. Can anybody here testify that when you found Jesus, some past pain you've been carrying your whole life has been healed and wiped away by what Jesus has done? Raise your hand if that's happened for you. Something that you thought you'd never get over, Jesus has brought you through. You guys realize that doesn't happen, right? People carry these things for their whole lives. They carry them until they die. Their whole personality changes. But when you come to Jesus, haven't you been there in the moment and you feel your soul just crack open and the living water begins to flow and that guilt and that shame and that pain and that hurt and that abuse just lifts off your shoulders because of what Jesus did? You don't find that anywhere else. The world says, well, everybody gets that. No, they don't. Because I've been there. I've seen it. I've talked to them. Washed in the blood, the past no longer has any control over somebody who's been washed in the blood. So why not get washed today, brothers and sisters? Jesus said, Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. How many of you would feel like you're, you're going through life like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress? You've got a burden on your back. You've got stuff that you're carrying with you. Baggage is a word we use more than burdens, right? You got baggage. You got shackles on your feet. Well, Jesus said, Come to me, and I will give you rest. How many of you are like, I don't even know about the forgiveness of sin thing? I just want rest. I just want to feel rest in my soul. Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you, take my burden upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Is Jesus going to require things of you? Yeah, but there are going to be things that are for your good. A personal trainer requires things of you, but they're for your good. Jesus requires things of you, but they're light. That's why John says in another place, because we overcome the world, so they're not burdensome. Every past hurt healed. Being able to stand in God's presence, having need of nothing, and having every past hurt healed. The end of the world is going to come like a storm. The Bible says it's going to take everybody by surprise, except those who are watching and waiting for it. However, God will preserve a remnant until the very end. Matthew 24, 22, Jesus said that these days are going to be so bad that if God didn't shorten them, everybody would die. But for the sake of the elect, which we just read about, they will be shortened. And many will come to faith during that time. But why would you wait for a day such as that? When you can be sealed on a day such as this, not with a mark upon your forehead, but with the seal of the Holy Spirit, that when you place your faith in Jesus and pledge your life to him, God's Holy Spirit will rush into your soul, bring you to life, and transform you from the inside, wash you in the blood of Jesus. Jesus. 